powerful subject of the cross. And uh, we're going to do that again today. And then uh, for the next two weeks after this, we're going to look at living by the cross. I think it's important for us to understand the cross, but then at some point you've got to live by the cross. If you come to the cross in Christ, you've got to start living by it. What does that mean? Last Sunday we, we talked about the, uh, the achievement of the cross, which is the satisfaction. As Stott said, that word is not in Scripture, but the concept is that the holy love of God has to be satisfied, and we talked about that. Today, we want to look at the consequence, one of the consequences of um, the cross and its salvation, a very powerful subject. We've been singing about it. It is a very deep subject, but we want to look at it today and see what we can discern and understand. For several years, I took Golf Digest. For those of you that are not golfers, that's a golf magazine, obviously. And uh, after spending money for several years on Golf Digest, I decided that I would cancel the subscription because my golf game needed more than a magazine. <laughs> and um, there was one thing that they did in there for a number of issues that I really liked. They would take the swing of a pro and they would break it down into pictures, frame by frame so that you could sit there and study it and hopefully learn something. And so it would show you the proper setup of a pro. It would show you the takeaway and then the uh, downswing and then the follow-through. And so I, I appreciated that and tried to get some help out of those frame-by-frame -frame pictures. Well, Scripture does something like that with salvation. It gives us word pictures that helps us to understand what salvation really is. If you read from the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2, he says, this great salvation. And I want to say at the outset, folks, salvation is so great. It is so wonderful. It is, it is very difficult to fathom, to understand it, or maybe even impossible to do it. But I think these picture words help us and every one of them deals with the human need. Every one of them that, that, that we get to today will speak to your need and to my need. It speaks to the human family and who we are and, and our need. And uh, one word will take us to the temple courtyard of the Jews. Another one will take us to the marketplace. It's where the Israelites did business. And then we will go into the courtroom where there are judicial proceedings, something like we did last week. The final one is a very personal setting. It'll take us into a home. It'll take us into a family. It'll take us into those relationships. So I want us to look at these four areas. These four picture words, these things that... Scripture presents to see if we can understand or get a sense of salvation, which is one word, but is very multifaceted. It's like looking at all of the shapes and the sides of a diamond that has been beautifully cut. It is very intricate, it's very difficult. But first of all, let's go to the temple yard and deal with what we call the human need. The human need here deals with the wrath of God and we deal with propitiation. 
Get the scene now. You're not in the courtyard of the Gentiles or the women. You're in the courtyard of the Jews. And this is where the brazen altar is. And this is where the people would bring their sacrifice. And they would put it on the altar and the priests would kill it. And the blood was shed. And the priests would officiate and take the blood into the holy, holy place. And the high priest would go into the holy of holies. The blood on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies would atone for sin. Now think about this in a spiritual sense on the cross. Jesus Christ is not only the sacrifice. He's the lamb. He's the one that will be killed. It is not only his blood that will be shed. He is the officiant. He is the high priest. And he literally, in that moment of the sacrificial system of Israel in a spiritual way, brought atonement for the world. As his blood was spilled, as he officiated, as he went to the mercy seat, as he covered it. And Romans 3.25 says that God presented him as a sacrifice for atonement. Literally there the word is propitiation. It's a big word, don't let it scare you, but it has to do with wrath. It is averting the wrath of God. When you deal with wrath, you're dealing with the response of God's holiness to sin. He can't tolerate it because he's holy. And his response to sin is, is wrath. And Jesus covered our sin and the wrath was averted. Don't like to talk about wrath. And you don't want to go to any of your friends that are not in Christ and start talking about the wrath of God. They don't want to hear it. And you don't really want to talk about it. We shy away from it. Folks, it's in the Bible. We read it in the Psalm a moment ago. It is an attribute of God. If you have holiness, you have wrath. Because that is his just response to sin. Is it sinful anger? Is it, is it that emotion that Jesus would have said is equated with murder? No. It's absolutely pure. The wrath of God is settled. It is always consistent. It is the same response to sin every time. It's not like our anger. Ours is impulsive, explosive, damaging, and I think the reason that we, we shy away from talking about wrath is that we, we get very uncomfortable with our anger because we know it's sinful. And, you know, we love to throw around the term righteous indignation. I doubt if we've ever pulled that off. I don't know if we've ever had anger that was without sin. Sometimes we try to flavor it and give it a different name. But our, sin, our, our anger is sinful. God's wrath is holy, always opposing sin. And I think people, they want an easygoing, tolerant, you know, let's just overlook that type of God. Do you realize how serious his holiness is? That when he revealed himself, Moses hid his face. And when he revealed his holiness, Isaiah said, oh, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people who were unclean. Daniel collapsed. And Simon Peter said, Lord, get away from me. I'm a man that's, that's sinful. 
You can't even be in my presence. And we read in Revelation that John fell to his knees as dead in the presence of a holy God. Sin alienates us from God because of his reaction to to sin and response to sin. And the scripture says that God provided him as the propitiation. Christ turned the wrath away. The folks understand that this has to be personally appropriated. John 3.36 says that the one who believes in Jesus has eternal life. But the one who rejects him, the one who rejects him will not see life because the wrath of God remains on him. To avert the wrath of God, you've got to appropriate the work of Jesus who is the propitiator. He's the one that turned the wrath from a God who had to give the wrath because of his holiness. That is one word picture, the temple yard and propitiation. That is a facet of of salvation. It's a very important one. Go with me now to the marketplace. Busy. It's the place of redemption. It's the place of buying and selling. It's commerce. That's what the word redemption is in Scripture. It is a word of commerce. And when anything was ever bought, or when anything was ever bought back, somebody had to pay the price. And when you come to redemption, it focuses on the plight of sinners, and the plight of sinners in regard to redemption is bondage. Folks, we were in bondage to sin. We were in bondage to guilt from the sin. We were in bondage to death. And it was Paul who said in Romans, he said, who will deliver me? This, I'm a wretched man. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, guess what? God showed up. God showed up. And he showed up in Egypt. When you go to Exodus 6 and you think about the bondage of the people in Egypt, the scripture calls that redemption. God went after them. And he freed them. They were in bondage. They were, in, they were slaves. They had no way out. And God said in uh, Exodus 6, 6, he said, I will bring you out from under your yoke. I will free you from being slaves. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And he did. And no, in that process of the Passover, the lamb died. The blood was spread on the doorpost. Firstborns were spared and redeemed. And God brought a people out of Egypt to be his people and to worship him and then to be a witness to the world. Sounds a lot like the church, doesn't it? What he did for us. We were in bondage, in bondage to sin, in bondage to guilt, in bondage to death. God showed up. Lamb was slain. It's interesting to me in Mark 10, 
45, it said of Jesus that he did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. God in Christ bought us back. I I like the word ransom. Folks, he created us. We were his. Then we sinned and fell into bondage. He bought us out of bondage. And Jesus was the ransom that was paid. And he rescued us, the scripture says, from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. And what I like about redemption, I've been redeemed from my sin. I've been redeemed out of the bondage of sin and out of guilt and death. Redemption's not over. Redemption is not over. When you read Paul's writings to the church in Ephesus, he said, look, you and I that have come to Christ have been given a deposit, the Holy Spirit. And the reality of the Holy Spirit in our lives is a guarantee. He said it's a guarantee of the redemption of those who are God's possession. He was talking about something yet to be. I've been redeemed from sin and bondage and death. One day, this old body's going to be redeemed. And it's going to be raised as a spiritual body, sown as a natural body, raised as a spiritual body. After Jesus, the first fruits, God is going to redeem all of me. And that's not all. One day, He's going to redeem this world. Right now, the scripture says that this world, because of sin, is groaning under the weight of sin. But one day, he's going to make it new. And in Revelation, it says there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and it will come down out of heaven. And you and I are going to live with him forever and forever and forever. The dwelling of God will be with men. Redemption is still happening and will happen. But it's a marketplace term. It's a buying back. And it's one of the word pictures, I think, that gives us another facet, another aspect of salvation. The third word, or a third word picture, takes us into the courtroom. It's where we were last week. And it deals with justification. You and I solemnly are led into the courtroom. Get the picture now. Any of you lawyers, anybody in here a lawyer? I have lawyers all in my family. Oh, we're shy. Well, what I was going to say is that I've, I've been called to, to court because as a pastor, you'd give, sometimes you would give, um, you know, some type of testimony or character reference. Oh, it's such a surreal place for me. It's so cold. It's so, I just don't like courtrooms. You're led into a courtroom and you're obviously guilty. There's absolutely no, no doubt about it. You and I in our, in our sin are guilty. And the justice of God says that the penalty for that is death. But there was a substitute for you and for me that satisfied the justice of God. You realize that every one of us are Barabbases. Here is a man that deserved to die. 
absolutely everything that he had done, he deserved to die. And they went to him and said, guess what? You get to live. How do I get to live? You get to live because somebody is dying in your place tomorrow. I deserve death. That's the just penalty for my sin. Just like a Barabbas. But I live because there was a substitute. Remember what the text says in Romans. God presented him as an atonement for sin. And he did this to demonstrate his justice. The justice of God satisfied by a substitute. You and I go free. We're pardoned. He's judged. And I stand before a holy God, believe it or not, a holy God, believe it or not, who has now been satisfied, and he says to me, not guilty. And I am acquitted before the bar of judgment. I am now right with God. That is a word picture of salvation, and it is amazing. You go into the courtroom, and you deal with justification. You go to the temple area, deal with propitiation. You go to the marketplace, and you deal with redemption. You deal with commerce, a buying. The last word picture is in the setting of a home or a family. It's reconciliation. It's very personal. Because of our sin, there was enmity between me and God, you and God, And there needed to be a restoration of a relationship. The relationship was broken, so there needed to be an end of alienation. And I love what Paul said in Galatians, and it goes back to being redeemed. He said, ah, redeemed? You were bought? You were bought out of your sin? So if you're redeemed, you're no longer a slave. Correct? Correct? Notice now what he says. But you're a son. And for the ladies, you're a daughter. And since you're a son, listen to this. God has made you an heir. We've been adopted into the family of God. In Greek, the word adoption means two two words, son to place. You have been placed as a son. You have been placed as a child. You have been placed as a daughter in the family of God. It is a legal transaction. We are members of the family of God, and I'm not only a son, I am an heir. And to me, some of the most amazing words in Scripture are these. You are a joint heir. With Jesus Christ. Oh my goodness. You're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I've been adopted because of God's love. But not only adoption into this family, there comes access. Access. When I was at Carmel, I, uh, this, the receptionist had their rules on screening my calls. <laughs> you got to screen calls, folks. <clears throat> um, but they all knew there was an exception. 
if the family called, they went through immediately. Because there was one who knew me as honey. There were two that knew me as dad. And there were several that knew me as granddaddy. If one of them called, they were put through immediately. It didn't matter what was taking place. Access. Do you realize that, that because we have been adopted, that we were redeemed and we're no longer slaves, but we're children of God? Do you realize that you can talk to God, the creator of this universe, anytime you want to? You can just say, Father, and begin. Do you understand the access? That is absolutely amazing. It's absolutely wonderful. And this is what Paul meant when he said in Corinthians, he said, look, I, I've been reconciled. I've got my relationship with God right now. And he said, and now he has given me the ministry of reconciliation. Do you understand that? That when you meet people or you deal with people, you say to them, look, you, you can't believe who I was and what I did and how awful I was and what God did for me. Propitiation, redemption, justification. I'm a child of God. I am, I am at peace with this God of the universe. And I want you to be too. That's the ministry of reconciliation. You make the appeal on God's behalf. Be reconciled with me. That's what this whole cross thing is about. Reconciliation. It's vertical. It's horizontal. I'm at peace with God and I'm to be at peace with you. We're brothers and sisters. Remember what the scripture says? <laughs> it looks, folks, when, when you're talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, it, they, they got it going. <clears throat> and it says, he broke down the wall of partition. He broke down the wall between those two. And he made them one. Members of God's household. That's how a Baptist preacher can be in an Anglican church as an interim. <laughs> Why? Because we are members of God's household. When you look at Scripture, how it describes us as the people of God, it says we're a body. We're a temple. We have all of these stones, but we're a, we're, we're a temple. We're one temple. We're one household. And see, after I finish here and Fred comes back up and we do a thing or two, you're going to walk around and say, peace, the peace of God. Because you've got peace of God with the Lord and you've got peace with one another. Which means you don't dodge somebody in here saying, mm, I think he sits on the right, I'll sit on the left. Peace with God, peace with one another. In Ephesians 4, Paul, Paul talked about the unity of the Spirit. <clears throat> he said, keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I don't think we have to keep the unity of the Spirit. That's God's work because there's one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. I think what he was saying there was that in light of the, the unity of the Spirit, which is God's responsibility, he has put us together in a body. He said, give attention to the bond of peace. Keep it in the fellowship. It's significant. It, it reflects what God has done and it's a witness to the world. 
that we're a family, that we're one, that we're brothers and sisters. And he said, the way you do that is to walk, one thing, I'll give you two, walk worthily. What does that mean? Literally, it means balance the scales. First, let your doctrine and your practice be equal. No hypocrisy. You want to stir up irritation and friction? Be a hypocrite. Walk worthily. He said, balance the scales. That means in responsibility. In a fellowship like this, you, re- you balance the responsibilities. I love what, what I see you doing. Somebody has the refreshment desk, and <clears throat> somebody comes and reads the scripture, and somebody does this, and then next week it's a different group, and you move the responsibility around, and you have to. That's what the scripture says. That's how you keep peace. If you don't do that, you've got the Mary and Martha situation where Martha says, Lord, I mean, uh, Mary, who is the one? Martha, who is the one? Martha is the cook, right? She's the one doing all the work. She said, Lord, get on Mary. She's not helping me one bit. That's what you get. You get friction. Share the responsibilities of the ministry. Share the financial responsibility as the family of God. Balance the scales. If you don't do it, it's an attack on peace. And he said, manifest Christ-like qualities. Lowliness, forbearing, forgiving. Folks, this works in the church. It works at home. Husband and wives, we have different roles, but folks, share the responsibilities. You know good and well what, what gives to, to peace and how it works. Children, pull your weight. You're getting room and board free. Amen. When you're in the family of God, I finally got an amen. <laughs> when, you are, when you are in the family of God, you balance the scales. You do it in the home, you do it in the church. Now, To conclude, propitiation, redemption, justification, and reconciliation. Four word pictures, and every one of those make us look awful. But they all glorify God, who dealt with every human need in Jesus Christ. Do you understand why now the writer of Hebrews would say, what a great salvation. And folks, we just touched the surface. But there are four facets of your salvation and my salvation. God is an amazing God. Let's pray. Father, what do we say? First of all, we thank you for the access And what took place for us to have the access? Oh, my goodness. But you're Father. You're our God. We're your children. And we humbly bow and say thank you. And an undeserving lot we are. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In conclusion, I want to wish all of you a happy Thanksgiving. 
and I hope it's a wonderful time for you with your family and friends. And uh, I want to remind you one thing. You remember the passage where Jesus is walking between Galilee and Samaria on his way to Jerusalem and ten lepers approach him. Jesus, have mercy on us. And he said, go show yourself to the priest. The priest had to declare anybody clean that had leprosy so they could re-enter society. And as they went, all ten were healed. One came back and fell at his feet and said, Lord, thank you. Jesus raised a very interesting question. He said, where are the nine? From people who ought to be grateful to the Lord, there's a 90% failure rate. Don't let it be us. Give him due thanks in this season. God bless you.